We simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Hello and welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. I'm Jessica Vaughn, Director of Policy Studies at the Center, and today I'm standing in for Mark Krikorian. My guest today is Dan Vera. He is a member of the Center's board and retired as a chief counsel with the Department of Homeland Security, specifically ICE and INS before that. And today we're going to talk about cleaning up after the Biden border crisis. Thanks for being with us, Dan. Well, thank you for having me, Jessica. So we continue to see staggering numbers of people crossing the border illegally, hundreds at a time, nearly 3,000 people crossing illegally in a 48-hour period recently in the Del Rio sector alone. Already a million have crossed this year, not counting the hundreds of thousands of gotaways, and no interior enforcement to speak of. How is the country going to clean up after the Biden border crisis. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Before we start, Dan, I want you to explain to our audience a little bit about your background and career in immigration and what you're doing now. Okay, thank you. Yes, I uh, started with the Immigration Service actually as a law clerk at headquarters while I was in law school in the Washington area. I got hired right out of law school under the Attorney General's Honors Program and sent to Dallas, Texas as a trial attorney where I handled cases, if not every day, every other day in immigration court on behalf of the former Immigration Naturalization Service. I was promoted within a year and sent to the region to handle and be the lead attorney on disciplinary actions, actions before the Merit Systems Protection Board and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and and other forums on cases involving agents and, and officers employed by the agency. And after three years of doing that, I was promoted and sent to Miami, Florida as the chief counsel of the second largest district counsel's office in the United States for the INS. I spent 13 years there. And ultimately, when we were absorbed into Homeland Security, I went to Orlando when the state was split up into two districts as the new chief counsel of Orlando and the northern half of Florida, where I continued to oversee and supervise immigration litigation. My specialty in the last 10 years was national security matters, but over the course of my career, I either handled or supervised thousands of cases in immigration court and federal court too. Since leaving the government, I specialize in two areas. One is immigration law and immigration practice, but I do probably about 30% of that. And the other area is in the area of employment law, where I represent federal employees against the U.S. government on everything from disciplinary actions, whistleblower matters, discrimination complaints, and matters of that nature. All right. So having been in both Florida and Texas, you've certainly seen your share of border crises 
and migration emergencies over the years, I'm sure. Yes, I was very intimately involved with every mass migration crisis after Marielle. I, I joined the service in 1985 and actually did a study on the Marielle boat lift to present to the commissioner when I was in headquarters. So when I got to Texas and when I got to Miami, I had at least some academic background in the area. I was part of the crew that came up with a, a process for handling the Nicaraguan mass migration circa 1988-89 out of the southern region in Dallas, Texas, and actually participated as part of the plan that I suggested in the triage that we set up down in the southwest border to deal with trying to stem the tide of the Nicaraguan mass migration. And when I got to Miami, clearly I was involved in handling the Haitian mass migration and what was supposed to be the second Mariel Cuban mass migration. And I was actually the architect of what we call the southbound interdiction theory that put a stop to the second Cuban migration and, of course, involved in all the planning and, and actual actions involving the uh, mass migration of Haitians when they did come. Interesting. So I'm interested in how this experience might suggest some things that the federal government should be doing, probably isn't doing, to deal with this. Let's start with the case of the Nicaraguans who were coming over the southern border, right? Right. It's a textbook case for how this current situation should have been handled. And I'll use one word. It's a triage type of setup. In the old days, there was a group of us, maybe eight, ten people that got together at the regional office with the regional commissioner and in a span of a few hours came up with a plan that we sent up to headquarters that was approved and, and we implemented it within hours. And all of it came from the fact that probably is even better today. The intelligence told us that they were coming, that the masses were coming through you know, all the third countries straight to the southern border. The, the basic thought was which is a, a mantra in, in immigration enforcement, it's all about detention. We had to stop the, the tide at the border, and we had to disincentivize people from seeking to continue to come. So what we did is we detailed a whole bunch of immigration judges, a whole bunch of immigration attorneys, and again, I personally asked to be sent there and participated in that as one of the trial attorneys. And it was actually a very simple process that worked. We set up tents that allowed us to detain people. We set up immigration courtrooms everywhere we could find a courtroom or something that looked like a courtroom. And as a trial attorney, one of the most basic things we did was when the Nicaragua National asked for asylum, we asked the voir dire, basically examine the witness. They got on the stand because it's their burden and they have to testify. And we asked maybe 10 questions. And the 10 questions, and, and I'm, again, was the architect of some of these questions, were very simple. Who's seeking to persecute you? What have you done? When have you been locked up? How many family members stayed back after you left? And when did this all start? And, you know, who, if you were to return today, name one person that's going to harm you. And, of course, 90% of them couldn't answer any of those questions. So we moved to shortcut the process. So we asked the judge to issue an order right then and there not schedule the case for the future, not set up a hearing two years down the road, but simply say you haven't presented even a prima facie case for asylum uh, qualifications, and therefore you don't have a valid basis for proceeding. And some people, of course, argued that it was somewhat cruel to do it that way. But as we 
said and everyone knew the foreign national had the key to the jail cell. They were going to be kept in detention because they could appeal that decision while that appeal was pending, or they could simply say, you know what, you're right, I'll just go home. And they were allowed to go home. We sent them back home. And that, as soon as the word got out, after we did probably two, three hundred of those cases, as soon as the word got out, they stopped coming. Because as, again, anybody that's practiced immigration enforcement knows, it's about economics. If a person can come in, even if they know ultimately they're going to be deported and work here for a couple of years and make 10 times, 100 times what they make back home, it's the cost of doing business. So we needed to put a stop to it, and we did. That's interesting. There's, there's a lot of things to unpack. Now, now, remind me, what year was this? This was around 88, 89. I, I don't remember specifically. I know I, I moved to Miami in 1990, so it was either the year before or two years before. Mm-hmm. And so this was an idea that came somewhat organically from within the ranks of the career personnel who were going to have to deal with it. And their recommendations were approved, accepted, implemented by the administration in charge. That in itself is something different from what's going on right now. I'm willing to hazard a guess that what current career Border Patrol, CBP, and ICE personnel think should be done is probably not filtering up for approval at this point in time. Do you think that's fair? Absolutely. One thing that I've always said, having been a practitioner for you know 30 some odd years, is immigration is politics and politics is immigration. And unfortunately, it comes from the top. Now, during that period of time, it, the system worked entirely different. I don't think today, because it's so broken up when the agency was absorbed into Homeland Security, it was broken up into various facets, as we all know. But Back then, you could get a group of eight high-ranking officials and and one lower-level official, which I was at that time, but with very solid field experience, and come up with a process to deal with the what we swore to do, and that's the mission of immigration enforcement, and come up with a process that we knew was viable. And the way it always worked was we pitched it. If they accepted it, we knew that that the criteria was this. If it worked, they were going to take credit for it. If it didn't work, we were going to get blamed for it and maybe face some (laughs) consequences. But we were committed, career, mission-oriented individuals. So we took that risk and we said, look, this is our plan. This is how we were going to deal with it. Let us go with it. Give us the money and give us the green light and we'll make it work. And we did. And it's as simple as that. And what we don't have and I've been very critical of this, is I don't think, as you correctly state, even if there's a voice in the field, they're being stifled. If they're not being stifled, the few people that are being outspoken, it goes up to a certain level. And if they're lucky, it just sits on some bureaucrat's desk and never sees a light of day. If they're unlucky, somebody says, move that person out because they're making too much noise. And it's unfortunate. Well, and the other thing that we have to factor in is I think it's fair to say that the Biden administration is not actually interested in interrupting this flow. They're more interested in accommodating it and managing it in a way that they think will be politically sustainable. It sounds to me like this way of dealing with the Nicaraguans, first of all, the determination to nip it in the bud 
and secondly, to operate under the assumption that the majority of these folks coming are not going to have a claim to stay in the U.S. legally that passes muster under our laws, and that dealing with these cases swiftly is a real feature both for the alien and for American citizens and taxpayers and, you know, the integrity of our immigration systems. And also, to be fair, this is before the asylum reforms of the 90s as well. But I think the principles seem to be still very relevant. The idea of doing the immediate hearings, is that something that is possible to accomplish under today's asylum system? Well, yeah. There's two phases to it. I mean, for the new arrivals, you can do what I just suggested. We did the same thing with, although we interdicted it, which was our plan in in Miami for Haitians and Cubans, interdict them before they get here because we knew it's much more difficult to deal with them once they're at the port of entry. But in essence, you can implement this triage system for new arrival. For the folks that have been allowed to come in, and before I get into that, I I just want to state that what this current policy of the Biden administration has done is to turn asylum processing, immigration processing on its head. They've lost, I don't think they negligently lost it, I think intentionally lost the notion of how to process a refugee, which of course is the way a person who is outside the U.S. is processed versus mm-hmm. how to process an asylum applicant or an asylee who is in the United States. Under the statute, there's a difference. And that's why when you start letting people in, now you got to process them under the asylum laws as opposed to refugee processing. But the bottom line is, for those that are already in the United States, you're going to have to get very creative. A new administration, if it were to come in, that's going to try to deal with this, again, has to go to the fundamental detention. You've got to find a way to locate and detain for those that are in the United States. And that means a gigantic, gargantuan effort in light of the numbers that have been allowed to enter the United States. The second is you've got to create a new program. It's not, it's not going to be new, but, but re-implement programs that have been used in the past. The uh, APSO-type processing, the uh, asylum pre-screening officer process where a cadre of immigration officers do these interviews, you know, one after the other after the other using the same trial attorney techniques and saying, okay, tell me about your case. And if you don't have a case, you don't get to pass go. You're going to get an order. To me, you'd have to set up a special immigration courts, maybe regional courts, where you assign judges that are dedicated to efficiency. One of the arguments that you know a lot of people have argued over the years is that you shouldn't be allowed to tell an immigration judge what to do. Well, nobody's asking an immigration judge to rule for or against an alien just because we're saying the laws and the facts dictate. And if you've got a group of dedicated, efficiency-minded judges that say, okay, if you have a case, you're moving on with your asylum application. If you don't, I'm issuing an order today. And I don't care about the political ramifications because in the new administration, there might not be any. And then you get a cadre of dedicated trial attorneys that know what they're doing know how to shortcut the cases, know how to ask questions, and know how to file these motions to pre-dermit that'll withstand judicial scrutiny. So, so the idea is to address this both, you know, there's two opportunities. One is when they arrive, 
illegally right. or when they you know are encountered by an immigration officer within the United States and may be using an asylum claim to defend against deportation. The other is when they actually have their first bite at the apple, so to speak, with the asylum officer, right? Right. And so there's an opportunity there to apply the standards that the law says are the grounds for asylum, which is persecution. And then secondly, it's because even if the asylum officer denies them, they then have the opportunity to make their case before an immigration judge, correct? Right. That for persons in the United States, yes, they have a right to, you know, seek to have a hearing before an immigration judge. But that's mm-hmm. that's and, where and it's now what happens. The judges will issue continuances almost routinely, is my understanding, at least for the first six months, and that's what helps drag out the process. So you're saying that we need some guidance for immigration judges on how they're expected to handle these cases in terms of timing and so on? Absolutely. It's it's always been a problem, even even before mass migration. Almost every jurisdiction in the United States was backlogged. Back when I started, might have been in some jurisdictions three months, six months, others, you know, were one, two years, depending on on the judges that were assigned there. And it was because of asylum cases. Well intentioned nineteen eighty Refugee Act, but but implemented very poorly, in my opinion, based on my history with the Immigration Service. What has to happen is instead of going to what what's called master calendar hearing, where there's one trial attorney and there's 40, 50 respondents, which is what aliens that have hearings before judges are called, sitting in the courtroom and one by one saying, okay, they go, they come up and they say, sir, do you admit or deny that you entered illegally? Well, I admit it, but I'm applying for asylum. Okay. You have an attorney? No. Okay. I'm going to continue it for that. Guy comes back in a week. Uh, did you find an attorney? No, I didn't. Okay. One more time. He comes back two weeks. Okay, I've got an attorney, and the attorney says, yes, we're going to apply for asylum. Okay, give me the first available date. It used to be, again, in in the worst jurisdictions, okay, that's two years down the road for you to file your asylum application and have your first hearing on it. Now, I would imagine, I, I I don't do any of these cases, but I would imagine it's probably three, four years, and maybe five years in certain jurisdictions. You can't do it that way. You've got to go in there and... You know, one of the proposals I have is a radical one that I'll get to in a little bit. It'll sound a bit radical to some folks, but it's an efficiency concept. But under the law right now, foreign nationals, aliens in, before immigration judges do not have a right to counsel. And I would agree a taxpayer should not have to pay for that in normal circumstances. I think the deal with the problems that have been created by the Biden administration, we're going to have to reconsider that. And if I was in charge, I'd be one of the proponents for saying, I think we need to give them counsel. And here's why. Because you cannot get to these hearings unless you have somebody representing the foreign national, the alien, who, again, you can hold responsible for what they're doing. Right now, a foreign national can come in, and I don't care how smart or educated they are, they can pretend not to know, they can forestall things, and judges are very sympathetic to the alien doesn't understand. If you have an attorney that represents that alien, now that attorney is liable, not only under the bar that he or she practices under, but under ACFR 292.3, which 
allows the Board of Immigration Appeals and, of course, the entire system to sanction an attorney who engages in improper activity. So if an attorney proceeds with seeking a frivolous application, if an attorney makes misrepresentations to an immigration judge, they're liable to being sanctioned, which might lead to them losing their license or not being able to practice for a while. And until you have that kind of mechanism, you're going to continue having people coming in and just simply, you know, either saying whatever they want to say or having attorneys that they're able to hire. And a lot of these attorneys are are not the top attorneys and they might not be as careful as they should be and, and maybe not concerned about losing their ability to practice the profession. Well, it seems like if we were to go to a system like that with taxpayer-funded counsel, we'd have to have some effective mechanism to cut down on the number of cases that actually ended up in immigration court, because that could get very pricey (laughs) for taxpayers to fund that. Uh, Of course. I mean, and that's why it's a little bit radical, but it's six (laughs) to one, half a dozen to another, because if you've got to either detain somebody for a significant period of time while their case is finished, or you've got to, you know, go out and and try to find these people because, you know, they disappeared after the first hearing, you know, how much money are you spending there? And my suggestion would be that it's not, it's not counsel for every case. It's counsel in these, what I would consider these specialized asylum courts that again, I would set up at maybe a regional basis. And again, giant processing centers. And those that qualify move on to their asylum claims. Those that do not get a final order and then they stay in detention. If they want to appeal, they have a right to appeal under the law. But if they want to go home, they don't want to stay in detention. Guess what? They can say, I waive my appeal. I'll go home. Yeah, I think it's a good idea to separate this whole type of case from you know, other routine cases in immigration court like criminal deportation cases and so on. Right. Have them dealt with separately so that one does not interfere with the effective functioning of the other. Now, would this have to be implemented through rewriting immigration laws? Certainly it would require funding from Congress. How do we get to an an effective system like the one that you propose? Well, the first part of the process, setting up dedicated courts and trial attorneys and detention environments, it's already legal to do. I mean, the service has a right to detain an alien anywhere the service deems it appropriate to do so and to proceed in the manners dictated by the Attorney General and the Secretary of Homeland Security to basically perform the duties required by the Immigration Nationality Act. So that's all in the law. The only one that might need either a change to the law, but certainly a change to the regulation, maybe it could be done by executive order. I, I haven't really thought this out, but would be representation of counsel. And again, it's not the ultimate requirement for this process that I'm suggesting. It's just one that I think would help significantly, again, creating an efficiency of results. You can't get to the results that you seek if it takes forever to complete because you have a person who claims that they don't understand the system and plays the system and some judge doesn't want to move forward because they're afraid of being criticized for taking advantage of a person who doesn't know their rights in immigration court. The system we have now is not getting to results very often at all, period. This would expedite the completion 
of these cases. So let's move on to the next step in this system, which is once an immigration judge issues an order of removal, and most of them are orders of removal, as it turns out, rather than granting an immigration benefit in these types of cases, often those removal orders are simply ignored by the person who was seeking permission to stay, by the alien. And over the last few years, since we've had this crisis ongoing at the border, many people have simply absconded on removal orders, or they never showed up to court to begin with, or they dropped out at some point in the process. Maybe they never even submitted their asylum application at all after passing their initial credible fear screening. How do we deal with the enormous number of people who've been ordered to leave and are remaining here in defiance of that order? And it's well over a million people at this point. Some of them were failed asylum seekers. Others are, were more routine immigration cases. Surely that's a part of it, too. It, it does no good to get to an order of removal if it's simply going to be ignored. It's absolutely the problem, and, and again, exacerbated by the numbers of people that have been allowed in by the Biden administration that haunted the immigration service for years. But one of the things that I can tell you, having been in enforcement for 22 years, a majority, a, a big percentage of the people that could be deported, the whereabouts in this day and age can be determined pretty easily. You would have to enhance the services detention removal program. You'd have to, as they did for a while, really push a lot of the DRO officers to the status of basically what used to be a, an immigration agent. And that's somebody that is not just a jailer, just doesn't seek to go out and enforce an order, but seeks to locate and process these people very quickly. So you'd have to do that. You'd have to create a cadre, again, of dedicated immigration officers that spend all day, day long on computers and liaison with local officials and, and city jails and city bureaus and of statistics and a variety of sources, even open sources that are out there that would tell us where there are likely foreign nationals that exist. And then, you know, we'd have to push forward to get these people into detention. That would require two other things that are very important to, again, efficiency. One is you'd have to really enhance an air operations scenario because you'd have to have a means of transporting, assuming they set up these, these regional centers, transporting those people that are detained from a local environment where they might be cut loose in two, three days by, you know, some, some immigration judge doesn't want to deal with the asylum case. So you'd have to, again, enhance your air operations, transport them to the regional centers, and then you'd have to have an enhanced air operations to transport them back home so that you don't have problems of trying to deal with the airline. And that brings into play one gigantic issue, and that's the issuance of travel documents by the foreign country, which are required before the aliens return home. And that one is using a cartel uh, statement, you know, that, that's a plata or plomo, you know, the money mm -hmm. or lead scenario. We, the United States, have this purse strings to a lot of these countries. So we have to, if somebody's withholding travel documents, we have to withhold money. And if not, if they still don't pay attention, then we have to get pretty hostile in dealing with them as a nation to include potentially saying, okay, nationals of your country are not allowed, even even the ones that have 
valid visas, they, they're not allowed to come until you start cooperating with us. There are countries yeah. that really sandbag this process of providing travel documents. Some of them are notorious for it, whether it's Haiti, Bangladesh, and there are some countries with whom we don't have true diplomatic relations who won't take their citizens back who've been ordered deported. The way they interrupt the deportation is to not provide the travel documents. They explain that the person, you know, that the United States can't prove that this person is one of their citizens. And the law does allow for us to impose visa sanctions. It's it's only been done in a few cases, but in fact, it did work with some countries over time, you know, and we don't have to say no one from this country can come. I think the most effective way is to say, you know, government officials can't come to the United States. People who are sending their kids to come to college in the United States, their kids can't come for college. There are some real pressure points that exist that the State Department typically has been very hesitant to do, but have been used with great success. So, yeah, that's a good point. We need to get a little more forceful in making sure countries fulfill their international obligations to take their citizens back. Yeah, I've done some presentations on this very topic, and I have a PowerPoint presentation that I did during the uh, Obama administration. And it has a picture of President Obama with the presidents of three countries. I believe it was Nicaragua, Honduras, and, and Mexico. And it was all about money. They were talking about how much financial aid the United States was going to give those countries. And I said, what a wonderful time for President of the United States to say to them, oh, by the way, there is one condition on this money. And, you know, money talks. And unfortunately, it hasn't been used. And, and some of those things you're suggesting are fantastic because the people that run those countries do send their kids to the United States to come to school and do have money invested in corporations and country nationals coming in and making a lot of money in the United States. If they started seeing that dry up, I don't think we'd have these problems with these travel documents, certainly not to the extent that we have them today. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. I have one more question on the border crisis that I'd like to ask and then quickly turn to a different topic. This border crisis, as it is evolving under the Biden administration, is a huge unfunded mandate for state and local governments and taxpayers. and they're expected to accommodate these large numbers of new illegal arrivals without any kind of coordination, notice, consultation, or anything meaningful. And yet it's affecting their schools, their health care, housing, et cetera. Is there anything that state and local governments can do to push back on this? Certainly Texas and Florida have tried some things. What do you think is the most effective way for states to indicate and deal with this problem? Well, that could take up a week-long uh, podcast, but to summarize it, you've got to educate the public. And one of the ways that potentially would work is what, again, Florida and Texas are somewhat doing, but I think could do a lot more of, and it would require a very hard push. As we all know, within the millions of folks that are coming in or are already here, there is a whole bunch of criminal element folks and threats to national security, et cetera. In the old days, we had the VGTS, Violent Gang Task Forces, the JTTS, which still exists. States and locals have repeat offender units. 
of course, the old tried and true jail check and even the fugitive apprehension unit. One of the things that isn't advertised is that within the communities that exist where a lot of these illegals are going to, there's a lot of criminal activity. And we, we, I mean, everybody, the states, the locals, they have to hit a lot harder and start taking out some of these groups, some of these gangs. And, and there's, I mean, I've been on the VTTFs and JTTFs. There's ways to deal with aliens in groups and take them out and publicize it, make a big deal about it. And a lot of locals don't want to get involved and a lot of states don't want to get involved because it's immigration enforcement. Or they're not allowed well, yeah. to get involved if they're a sanctuary, but go ahead. But that's the argument. The argument is it's a federal function. You cannot enforce immigration law. And my argument is, yes, I can. If that alien has a gun or a knife in their pocket, and if I have a way to get to that gun or that knife, then I've got somebody in custody and I'm going to tell the public that not only are we going to prosecute them, we are demanding that the federal government take this person off our hands when we're done with them. And, you know, that happens very quietly now because of federal funding for state and local law enforcement. But that's got to really be pushed because, I mean, I was part of some of these concepts in Miami in South Florida, Palm Beach County, Broward County, where simple stuff like all you need is the fact that you know that there's one illegal alien in a gang and you let that alien get into a car, then you stop the car. One of the things we knew about gangs was they always have guns. Most of them have narcotics. Several of them are wanted. Some of them are on parole or probation. And you do a search incidental to, to a lawful stop. And guess what? Now you got a treasure trove of violations, criminal and administrative and otherwise. And if you advertise that to the community and you say, this happened right down your street, and there's a whole community of these people living there, that allows you to start educating the people of, okay, it's stratified. We're taking out criminals. Then we got to take out some of these, you know, flagrant violators. And then the people don't pay taxes and, and, you know, all the way down to just somebody who overstayed their visa or came in illegally. Yeah, that kind of cooperation ought to be routine across the country, and let's hope that we can restore that to good effect in our communities for the sake of public safety. So when you talked about your background at the top of the show, you mentioned that you sometimes represent whistleblowers or other employees of the immigration enforcement agencies in certain types of disciplinary actions. And the case that came to mind to me when you said that was the case of the mounted Border Patrol agents who were photographed trying to interdict some of the Haitians who were in a a caravan of thousands of people that were trying to cross uh, the river illegally and made a camp under the bridge there. And I think it was Del Rio, if I'm not mistaken. And at the time, the president and others claimed that these Border Patrol agents had been acting improperly and the usual suspects in the news media tried to inflame this episode. What is happening with that? And give us your take on how this has played out and what what you think will happen, what these agents may face. Well, if we believe what we're hearing in the media, they're about to be charged administratively. And it's something I predicted. I'm part of a email community of retired immigration officers. And when everybody celebrated the fact that it was announced that there were going to be no criminal charges, I said, case is not over. 
I know this Homeland Security and DOJ are going to come up with charges and everything from it could be conduct on becoming an officer to civil rights violations that are all matters that can be charged against an officer and lead to discipline all the way to termination. It's a complex legal scenario, but the reality is these cases were tainted at the outset because the president and other high-ranking officials within the administration, basically, they judged the case without hearing the evidence, and they made determinations, it can be argued, they made determinations that are, in essence, binding or certainly influencing the lower-level officials who are the ones with the right and authority to proceed with discipline in these matters. So, as I recently did, I already volunteered. I said, look, I'll take, I, I don't do cases on contingency, but I'm volunteering to take one, the best case, because just like I've done in other scenarios, if I win one case, it topples all, all the other ones. And I can tell you, this is, I could have won this case, I think, in my first year as a trial attorney with the INS. If I had been an attorney with the INS and this case had come up, I would have said, you can't do this. This case is tainted. So now, I think there's a mechanism for fighting these cases, but they're going to put these people through the mill. And if they have to go out and pay for mm -hmm. attorneys, as I heard when I was with the service, one of my colleagues was told this, you can fight the charges, but you're going to do them without a paycheck. We're going to fire you and then you can appeal. And even if you win two years down the road, so what? Hmm. Very disturbing that this could happen to these agents who are simply trying to do their job. Well, thank you so much, Dan. Um, it's really been interesting and fun talking through these issues with you. I appreciate your insights, and we appreciate working with you as one of our board members. And I hope some of your ideas are heard by those who can take them and run with them. Well, I appreciate it, Jessica. It was a great opportunity. And, and please allow me to make one last comment about something that's a pet peeve of mine. When we hear this administration try to avoid answering questions that are asked of them regarding these matters. The Privacy Act, it, it, under law, if somebody reads the Privacy Act, it only applies to U.S. citizens and permanent resident aliens. It doesn't apply to people who are illegally here. So once again, you know, that'd be something to deal with as a public in, in trying to get answers and force these people to do their job. So again, give, thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak out a little bit on this. And I really Thank you for your service to the uh, organization and for your efforts in seeking to get these matters out to the public. That's a great point on the Privacy Act, and thank you for making that. So thanks for joining us, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Yes, thank you. Now I want to shift focus a little bit to another topic. Proponents of mass migration often claim that the border crisis in part, and illegal migration in general would fade away on its own if only we had more legal opportunities for people to come from abroad to work. Well, more evidence of the fallacy of this claim surfaced this week with a story that was reported in, of all places, the Atlanta Journal and Constitution by a reporter named Lotaro Grinspan on August 5th. And the story describes how a group of about 40 engineers from Mexico who had been trained and were working as engineers in Mexico were lured to Georgia by labor contractors, specifically in this case, one by the name of Aldwell, who promised them engineering jobs at higher pay 
than they had been earning in Mexico, working for an auto parts factory in West Point, Georgia, in this case, making parts for Kia automobile. The engineers were allowed to enter and they obtained and were approved for TN visas. These are visas that were created under NAFTA, the North Atlantic Free Trade Agreement that's since been updated, specifically to provide legal opportunities for people from Mexico and Canada to come and work, but only for a prescribed list of 60 occupations. And these visas are for an indefinite time period. There are no numerical limits on how many people can use them. There are no requirements that employers pay a certain level of salary. And there are no protections for U.S. workers in these same occupations. So these engineers from Mexico, who all had good jobs in Mexico, by the way, but they were promised salaries of $44,000 a year to come work in Georgia at this auto parts factory. And a lot of them were excited about it. Well, it's bad enough that these TN visas allow employers to hire engineers to displace Americans with much lower salaries, $44,000 in this case versus $80,000 that American engineers make in that part of Georgia, according to the Department of Labor. But as it turned out, these weren't engineering jobs. They were actually manual labor in the factory, 12-hour shifts hauling bumpers and transmissions around the factory, working on the assembly line, night shift manufacturing jobs. So these Mexicans were tricked. And they're now filing a class action suit and taking other legal action against the labor contractors and potentially the employer making a case that they were victims of human trafficking. And that's not a stretch in this case because they were duped into accepting these jobs and told they would be getting a certain kind of job they weren't. And I hope the employers and especially the labor contractors will be found responsible and punished. This case is the tip of the iceberg in terms of problems, not only with TN visas, but all the temporary work visa programs, all of which have been compromised and used for human trafficking over the years, and especially in recent years. There's tremendous pressure right now to expand these temporary work programs as a solution to illegal immigration. But there are already serious problems, not just with the TN visa, but with other temporary work visas, whether they're farm labor visas, seasonal visas, white collar temporary work visas, or exchange workers. Not only do they displace U.S. workers and depress their wages, but they're a vehicle for fraud, especially when there is so little regulation and oversight of them, and especially when third-party labor contractors are involved who recruit the workers, don't even bother trying to place Americans or legal immigrants in these jobs, and they give the employer a little bit of legal cover. So lawmakers need to resist the temptation to expand these temporary work visas. They are not a solution to illegal immigration and in some cases are enabling human trafficking to occur a great suffering for the workers themselves and increasing the displacement of U.S. workers. Okay, that's it for this week. And if you have any comments, questions, or even tips for research projects or stories, don't hesitate to get in touch with me either on our website, cis.org, 
or I'm on Twitter at Jessica V underscore CIS. Thanks so much for listening.